Isaiah prophesied about a great number of things in his book, things that would be fulfilled in his day, things that were fulfilled during Jesus' earthly ministry, and some things that have not yet come to pass. Today we will hear of a prophecy that is referenced by our Lord in a parable. So let's read Isaiah 5, the first seven verses. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That's our first reading. Our second reading comes to us from the New Testament, from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Now, Acts 2 is the story of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And on first glance, the the connection between this and our text this afternoon is not immediately obvious, but I trust that it will be made clear by the end of the sermon. If it's still not, I will be out there. We can talk about it. Let's read Acts 2. We'll read verse 5 and then 22 through 41. Acts 2 verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's important. We'll skip ahead now to verse 22. This is um, after they were speaking in tongues, and Peter is now sharing the gospel with them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell with hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now in response to our readings, let's sing from Psalm 83, a song calling for God to show justice against Israel's enemies. And as you see in Isaiah's prophecy, we heard that sometimes the enemies of Israel are Israelites themselves. When the wicked, even those who are covenant people, turn away from God and persecute the righteous, they are enemies. But all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, no matter their background, and all who reject his covenant love will feel his wrath. Let's sing Psalm 83, the stanzas 1, 2, and 7.
thank you for working with me with some of these more difficult tunes. The message is worth it, even though the tunes might be hard to sing. They're hard to sing even for me sometimes. All right. Now, it may not surprise you that I regularly keep contact with your pastor, and this past week was no different. We discussed what might be good for me to preach on, and he mentioned he was in the middle of a sermon series going through the gospel according to Mark, and asked me if I had any sermons on Mark to preach. And together, of the few that I had, we decided on this one, the parable of the tenants. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Now, the parable of the tenants is clear, and it is tragic. Jesus, here, he's, he's coming to the end of his earthly ministry, and his words of warning are sharp and straightforward, understood by the disciples and the religious leaders both. Mark 12, we'll read the first 12 verses together. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. After the sermon, without further announcement, we will sing our Amen song of Psalm 118, the stanzas 2, 4, and 6. May God bless the preaching of his word. Beloved in Christ our Lord, what does the word cancel mean to you? What images does this word bring up in your mind? Maybe cancel makes you think of a mistake. Maybe you put the wrong pin into the machine at the gas station and you have to cancel your purchase and start over again. Or maybe you, you think about canceling plans. You have an event and, and then something unexpectedly comes up and you say, Sorry, guys, I have to cancel tonight. But in the last few years, the word cancel seems to be applied most often to people. These days, cancel culture seems front and center. But should we really cancel celebrities and politicians for racist or sexist actions or statements from the past? Is it right to take away someone's status, someone's influence, somebody's money, based on one thing that they said maybe out of context, something that they wish they could now change. And the church, 
we're caught up in the middle. Some churches have embraced the canceling of actors and politicians. Others have not. Others have have questioned if cancel culture really fits with the grace culture that should be first and foremost in the church. We have received grace. We need to give grace to others. We are to have no end to our forgiveness. When Christ tells us to forgive 70 times 7, that doesn't mean that you count to 490 and then you stop forgiving. It means forgiveness without limit. Forgiveness without end. And, and that's absolutely true for us. But God's forgiveness does have a limit. God's forgiveness is not never-ending. There is a time when God says, enough is enough. And this may not seem like the God that you're familiar with. This might not seem like the grace that you've been taught before. But this is the God of the Bible. This is the God that is described in the parable of the tenants. Because in this parable, we see that the parabolic kingdom is taken away and given to others. We'll see that that happens because of extreme wickedness despite extreme patience, and finally, in fearsome judgment. The parabolic kingdom is taken away and given to others because of extreme wickedness. When grace is confronted with extreme wickedness, what does grace do? More often than not, when we see this in Scripture, grace wins, and it's beautiful. We see grace work in the life of the extremely wicked King Manasseh. Maybe you know that story. One of the most wicked kings to have ever reigned. He served other gods. He sacrificed his own children to them. But grace found him in his prison cell. What about the Apostle Paul? Surely we know Paul. Before he was ever known as Paul, he was Saul, a persecutor of the church, going door-to-door, arresting Christians, turning them over to be killed. He was extremely wicked. And grace found fertile ground in his life in a miraculous way. And he later writes, This saying is trustworthy and true. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So the grace of God is stronger than the wickedness of man. That's wonderful. But then... What about this parable? Why didn't it work this time? Why didn't God's grace work in the lives of these wicked tenants? It's because grace, though it is unconditional, though it is unlimited in scope, it is not unlimited in duration. It's not unlimited in time. Let me explain. God's grace is unconditional. There is nothing that we can do to deserve it. We don't have to be better than all the rest. We don't have to be smarter, holier, better looking. As Paul writes, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Christ came for sinners, and that's who we are. God's grace is unlimited also in scope. What that means is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background. This is what God had been telling his people for so long, that they, the chosen people, the Jews, were meant to be a blessing to the nations. The nations will be blessed through you. Genesis 12 to Abraham. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 26 to Isaac. 
And he did this so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Joshua 4 to Israel. And the examples could go on and on. One of my personal favorites is Psalm 87 that talks about the future glory, the future Jerusalem, that all of these nations are welcomed in and they are reborn as citizens of Jerusalem. And if you take a look at that psalm, note who these nations are. They're all former enemies of Israel. The Egyptians who enslaved them, the Babylonians who took them into exile, the Philistines who who terrorized them again and again, these former enemies are welcomed in as brothers and sisters. God's grace is unlimited in scope. It's not limited to a certain nation, not just limited to those in the Old Testament or the New Testament, as though when the Apostle John finished writing the last word of the book of Revelation, then grace ran out. No. It's unconditional. It's unlimited in scope, but not in duration. For there will be a time when it is too late. It's not too late now. God's grace hasn't run out, but there will be a day, whether it's your death or Christ's return, whichever happens first, there will be a day when it's too late. God gives us chance after chance after chance. And if we continue to reject him, if we continue to laugh in his face and sin unrepentantly, grace will eventually run out. And that is what happened to these tenant farmers in the parable. They rejected the landowner's instructions time after time after time. And finally, he had enough. The restraint and the patience showed by the landowner is extreme. And and we'll get there. But first, the wickedness of the tenant farmers is also extreme. I'll go th- and we will go through this short story twice, the first time focusing in on, on the tenants. And he began to speak to them in parables. Jesus, he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry here, and so his message and his intensity were increasing. It's important that the people understood before it was too late, that they understood what grace really was, that they understood that he would not be surprised by his death, but that this was the real reason why he had come. And so he spoke this parable, a clear parable, a parable that required no explanation to the people, no explanation to the religious leaders. We see that in in previous parables, Jesus had to explain it, not this time. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, given our reading, Isaiah 5, you can understand that the religious leaders, they would have recognized this very setup. It tells the very same story as Isaiah 5. A man, he took great care to plant this vineyard. He removed the stones, built them into a wall, dug a pit for the grapes to be stomped in, and then built a tower for oversight. In Isaiah, the man was God, and the vineyard was Israel. Here Jesus takes it in a slightly different direction, but the parallels are strikingly similar and would not have been missed by anyone familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So man, he planted this vineyard and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And this was the common practice of the day. A wealthy landowner He would have his hands full with many different business enterprises. 
and he could afford to hire farmers to take care of his land while he was busy. It was a practice that these tenants, they would stay there, they would work the land, and as rent, they would send the landowner a percentage of the profits, sometimes up to 50%. This was the deal, and the tenant farmers knew this. It wasn't a surprise that the landowner sprung on them. But when he came to collect, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now this is shocking behavior. After all, look at all that the landowner did. He did all of that work of uh, planting the vineyard, of putting up the fence, of digging the pit, building a tower. They should be thankful that they get this privilege of living off of this land. They should not be dissatisfied in the least, much less showing outright cruelty and wickedness. And again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Frustrated, these tenants, they they escalate their evil. They wanted all the profits of the vineyard, and the landowner just wasn't listening. Probably after their treatment of the first servant, though, there there would be a bit of anxiety. How's the owner going to react to this? Will, Will he give us a fine? Will we get kicked out of the land? What should we do? As they sat there, feeling the rush of the evil that they did, while at the same time, Uh, fearing for what it would bring them, another servant came. Really? This is all that that the owner's going to do? Well, we know how to deal with servants. Let's send him a real message. How bad, landowner, do you really want your grapes? Is your wine worth the life of one of your servants? And so they struck him on the head and they mocked him. This word can mean mocking someone in their minds, in words, or even in actions, but they humiliated the servant. They, They wounded him. With this escalation of evil comes the escalation of the rush that you get and an escalation in the anxiety. Maybe some of them thought, this is getting out of hand. Maybe the owner would forgive one, but two? The landowner, he showed remarkable patience, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. What started so slowly was quickly getting out of hand. They may have thought that they were wearing out the landowner. I can do this all day. Each servant that you send, we have an answer for him. You want the fruits of the land? Come and get them. What was obvious to the first audience of this parable, but maybe not as obvious to us, is that Jesus was talking about the messengers that God had sent to warn Israel. Messengers like Elijah, Isaiah, Zechariah, John the Baptist. In Matthew, our Savior laments over Jerusalem saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The Israelites would have none of it. Elijah was threatened with death, driven out into the wilderness when he spoke against Ahab and Jezebel and the worship of false gods. Isaiah, according to legend, was sawed in two by King Manasseh. Zechariah was killed between the sanctuary and the altar. John the Baptist was beheaded when he spoke out against the corruption of King Herod. And they refused to listen. No matter how many prophets God would send to them, their hearts were hardened. They refused to love God as he had loved them. Because God is not asking too much, is he? 
just as the landowner did all of the hard work and just asked for a bit back, so too with God, with his love for us. We never love God first. God shows his love while we were still sinners, and he wants a bit of it back. One preacher so wonderfully put it this way, He said, God's love language is obedience. God's love language is obedience. Now, you probably know the the love languages. Maybe you've read the book or taken a quiz or a course. There's physical touch. There's quality time, gifts, acts of service, and words of affirmation. But for God, his love language is obedience. When we obey God, we show him that we love him. When we obey his rules for living, we show him love. When we disobey but but follow his commandments then for repentance, we're showing him love again. Even though God calls us to perfection, he knows that we can't keep his standards, and so he gives us grace, gives us second chance after second chance after second chance. Then God, the landowner, sent his people, the tenants, one final person. One final messenger, his only beloved son. He still had another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But, but instead of seeing this as a final act of grace and love, what did they do? The tenants said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. This was the final indignity, the final act of wicked rebellion, an act that was yet to come when Jesus told this parable. Jesus is the only beloved son. He came down to this earth. He took on human flesh. We can read in Hebrews, in these last days he is spoken to us by his son, the prophet par excellence. But in their wickedness, In their arrogance, they put the Son to death. It wasn't ignorance. It wasn't ignorance. These religious leaders, they saw before their very eyes Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and so many other miracles. They saw him raise the dead, and what did it do? It hardened their hearts further. They went out and they sought how to kill him. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who he claimed to be. They knew the proof that he was telling the truth in their hearts. They worried that he would take away their position. They refused to bend their knee to the rightful king, to their rightful God. Their wickedness was extreme, even in the face of God's repeated chances and warnings. Their wickedness was extreme despite God's extreme patience. That's our second point. We've gone through the parable, looking at it from the perspective of the tenants. Now let's look at it once more, but this time from the perspective of the landowner, from the perspective of God. So man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Very similar to the parable in Isaiah 5, except for one difference. In Isaiah, it was Israel herself who was the vineyard. Israel was the vineyard, and when it produced no good fruit, only wild grapes, probably the idea there is very small grapes, very sour or bitter grapes, 
not proper fruit, God tore it down. And here we we see the same love of the landowner, that same hard work that went in to prepare it. But now Israel is represented not as the vineyard itself, but as the tenants. This is important to note, because now the vineyard is a responsibility. It's a gift to his chosen people. It's a gift, and so it can be taken away. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And here, we see that the vineyard does produce fruit. It does produce good fruit. The fruit of of safety and stability. The fruit of the golden age of Israel. Wealth and prosperity, victory over their enemies. And God, having shown his love to Israel by granting them the blessing of the vineyard, he wants to see that his love has been acknowledged and received. He's shown his love through these gifts. We can think the golden age during the reign of King David, during the reign of King Solomon. Then what happened? The people fell away. That's when the prophet started to come and warn them. He'd shown his love through gifts, through acts of service, and now he wants them to be obedient, to be thankful, to be worshipful. A very legitimate desire from our God. He's given us everything. All that he wants is for us to recognize that, recognize these gifts, use them properly. He sent a servant. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He was just reminding them of what they owed him, what they had promised him, and they rejected his messenger. But God would not be deterred. God's grace is not a one-time thing, but it persists day after day. And so he sent another servant. He sent more and more messengers, more messages of grace and love, reminders of their obligations, reminders that this was his land, reminders that he was the one who built the vineyard. He was the one who took them out of the land of Egypt. We heard that in the law from from Deuteronomy 5. You are to keep the Lord's day because he took you out from the land of Egypt. He saved you. He gave you all of your days. You are no longer slaves in Egypt. You have the ability to rest one day. Just rest. Just give it back. He reminded them that they're lesser servants. They themselves are not the landowners. Reminders of the truth of all of this. But they refused. And that's the trouble with God's grace and God's patience. God's people in the Old Testament... In the New Testament, even today, we'll mistake his patience and his grace for something else entirely. God's people mistake his patience for either weakness or indifference. There are those, Christians and non-Christians alike, who see God's law. When God says they should not murder, when God says that they should remain sexually pure, that we should honor those in authority over us, They see this, and then they also see those who disobey God's law. They see people abusing their body with drugs and alcohol, leading promiscuous lives, diving headlong into the warped and twisted pleasures of this world. And then what they don't see is any consequence from God. It seems there are no consequences. Oh, that God is against these things. He tells us very clearly in his word. But then why does he do nothing? And then their image of God, it shifts. It shifts from God as king over all, one who is to be worshipped and adored. It shifts from that to a foolish 
and powerless old man who can do little more than weep and plead with his children to come back. He no longer has any power over them. He can do nothing more than to beg and to try to convince them. Just like how the tenants viewed the landowner. All he will do is send servants. That's it. When we misunderstand grace, we think that God is weak. Or we misunderstand grace and we think that God is indifferent. God is so far above us. The landowner is so far away. He has more important things to worry about. If we kill a few of his servants here and there, he has many more servants. God is a God who is busy with running the universe. You may have heard this excuse, too. God, if he exists, is too high up. Why would he care who shares my bed? Why would he care what I put up my nose or what I inject into my veins? God hasn't done anything yet. Why would, why would he do anything now? All the landowner does is send servants. There's no follow-through, so why care? That's not what grace is. Grace is not weakness. Grace is not God winking at sin and saying, boys will be boys. But rather, it's as the Apostle Paul so expertly explains and argues in Romans 2. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Grace is about love. God's love isn't weakness. God's love is not impure, it's not corrupted, but rather he pleads with us because he doesn't want to have to take that next step. He doesn't want to punish us. Because he knows what that punishment is. He knows how harsh it is. It's his desire for us to obey his commandments. It's his, it is his desire for us to worship him, to do what we were made for. Fish were made to swim, birds were made to fly, and human beings... With our souls, we were made to worship God in a much deeper way than any other creature. That's what we were made for. That's why Israel was given the vineyard. Because what was this vineyard? It was a blessing, but what was it exactly? Well, this vineyard was a few things. This vineyard was the law. A gracious gift from God telling them how to live their best lives before his face. To live lives of godly joy and godly pleasure, enjoying the wife of their youth, enjoying the opportunity to raise children, partaking in the joy of wine without foolishness or sin or consequences the next morning. This vineyard was also the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that would produce grain and grapes, olives and figs, a place where the cattle could graze and produce milk and meat for the people. And this vineyard was, perhaps most strongly, this vineyard was belonging to God as his chosen people, as the apple of his eye, his treasured possession. Having God as their king, routing their enemies before them, filling their hearts with the joy of belonging, the joy of being loved by the sovereign Lord. God gave them wives and husbands, but they abandoned them and slept with prostitutes. God gave them good harvests, but they took that and they ate and they drank to excess. God blessed them with children, and these they sacrificed to false gods. God gave them all of these wonderful gifts, and they spat in his face. And then, 
instead of absolutely destroying them, as was his right. Instead, God pleaded with them to come back. He sent them messenger after messenger, warning after warning, and finally, he sent them his son. The son was the last warning to the tenants. This is serious. My father is willing to forgive, so please, repent. They still wouldn't listen. And Jesus Christ was God's last word to humanity. And he still is. Jesus Christ is the most powerful expression of grace and justice, of love and wrath. And when we reject God's last word, when we reject that grace and that love, there is nothing left for us but justice, wrath, and fearsome judgments. It's our final point. In our telling of the parable so far, we've gone through it twice, but we still haven't gotten to the end. The end that is tragic, but also fitting for this story. It's curious, it's, it's not only Jesus who felt that this was a fitting end to the story, but in fact, in the parallel account in Matthew, we read that Jesus asked the audience what they thought the owner should do. This audience made up not just of the people, but of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And their reaction They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. And by saying this, they signed their own death warrant, didn't they? It's exactly like when the prophet Nathan came to David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He told him a parable where David was the main character and David then pronounced judgment on himself. Pronounce judgment on himself. What should be done for this man? What, should, what can be done to this man? Who is this? And Nathan replied, you are the man. You are the man. And how these words would have hung in King David's palace. How these words would have hung in the air in Jerusalem where Jesus was teaching. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they knew that this was a parable against them. But instead of repenting, instead of throwing themselves on the mercy of God, they hardened themselves. They looked for ways to arrest him. What they wanted to do was they wanted to silence the message. They thought that somehow they could escape the message by silencing it. This would be like in in a hospital when a heart monitor goes off because a person's having a heart attack. And the nurses and the doctors, they don't like the beeping. And that makes sense. The beeping means that somebody's in trouble. But instead of doing the right thing, instead of stopping the beeping by doing the hard work of chest compressions, shocking the person back to a right heart rhythm, this is like they simply unplugged the heart monitor. That stops the beeping. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They didn't like the sounds of the warning of judgment, so they tried to find a way to stop the message. And they did. They killed the ones speaking, not realizing that the sounds of conviction, although unpleasant, are better than the sounds of condemnation. Sounds of conviction, though unpleasant, are better than the sounds of condemnation. I've had something very similar to this in my home congregation at Cloverdale. 
There's one gentleman who regularly after the service is over and I'll be standing at the door, he'll come up to me and he'll say, I didn't like what you had to say. I said, oh, but it's good that you said it. I needed that conviction. You've convicted me of my sins again. He doesn't like it, but he knows that it's necessary. That was exactly my reaction too when I first came to the Canadian Reformed Church came from another church where there was no talk of condemnation or sin. It was a sort of happy, clappy church, you could say. Huge band up front, smoke machines, light machines. It was a wonderful show. Then I came to the Canadian Reformed Church, and I heard of my sins and my misery. thought, I'm not sure I want to go back there. But I had to, because I had heard the gospel for the first time in my life. The gospel includes that bad news. It starts with bad news, and it ends with good news. You are sinful, but God has paid for that sin. Come to him, repent. There is time, but that time is not forever. Because there comes a day when God's grace does run out. It will not last forever. His mercy and kindness and grace always work in connection with his justice, and there will be a day when justice is done. When is that day, you might ask? Is it too late for me right now? Have, have I missed the opportunity to be saved? Should I stop going to church? Should I plug my ears? Should I harden my heart? Well, if you're alive and you're breathing and you're thinking enough to ask that question, then no, you haven't come to the end of God's grace. No, it isn't too late for you. Where there's life, there is hope. There was hope even for the Pharisees who were standing there. There was hope even for those who screamed for Jesus to be crucified. But what happened 50 days after the resurrection? What happened in our reading from Acts 2? I told you it would come up. A mass conversion of Jews from Jerusalem. A mass conversion of those who had killed, <laughs> who had killed the servants of the landowner. A mass conversion of those who had killed the son. The early church, did you know this? The early church was made up of former Pharisees, former teachers of the law, former rebels. Those were the people who would have come to Jerusalem for the feasts. These were the people who were cut to the heart. Peter was not speaking metaphorically. He was not speaking generally of you killed the Messiah. He was speaking specifically. They were the ones who called for his arrest and his death. And then 3,000 souls, 3,000 of them came to faith. There will be a day when it is too late. But if you can hear my message, if you can hear the message of the only beloved Son, then that day has not yet come. But there will be a day coming when it is too late. When the owner of the vineyard will come and he will destroy those wicked tenants and give the land over to others. Because this is justice. The kingdom of God had been entrusted to the Jewish nation, but they abused that privilege. They deliberately and repeatedly rejected God's love and refused to share it with the world. And so the kingdom was taken away from the Jewish nation and given over to the Gentiles. Gentiles like you and me. All the blessings that were once theirs are now ours. We belong to God. We are his children. We have his holy word still available. It's still available for every single Jewish person who comes to faith. They have not lost that opportunity, but it's been given also to the Gentiles. We've been grafted in, Paul says in Romans 11. 
the vineyard. The kingdom is an immense blessing, but it's also a responsibility. If God did not hold back his justice against the original tenants, why would he think, why would we think that he would hold it back against us? Beloved, our, our Savior, uh, Christ has come as our Savior, but also as our judge. We could, think about it, we could think about it this way. God has laid Jesus Christ across your path as a roadblock, as a roadblock to hell. He's standing there in the road as the prophet telling you to confess your sins, telling you to repent, telling you to admit your wickedness and have him train you in righteousness. This isn't an easy process. It's, it's not even a gentle process. But it is loving. For what does our Savior do? He doesn't just take you by the hand and walk away from hell with you. But instead, what he does is he tackles you on the way to hell as you're running down that road. And he says, not so fast. You, you go to heaven. You are my chosen beloved child. You go to heaven and I will go to hell for you. Because Jesus Christ is not only the rabbi with the right answers. He was not only the prophet long foretold by Moses. His death on the cross was not plan B for his earthly ministry. As though he came as preacher and because that didn't work out, he became savior. No, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, he was savior. He came not only as the prophet who was also the message, but he came as the priest who was also the sacrifice. Time after time, the servants came and told Israel to repent. Then the son came and told them to repent. But there was even more mercy than that. It wasn't just chance after chance, as though salvation is accomplished by us, and Christ simply gives us the option. But instead, this is, this is the message of Christ. He says, my father is furious, and rightly so. You have sinned horribly. He will kill you. But, but I will take your place. I will take the death that you so justly deserve. I will die in your place. Just repent. But if you ignore this message, if you see him in the road as someone who has gotten in the way of you living your life the way you want to live it, and you beat him, and you strike him on the head, and you treat him shamefully, and you kill him, then you will run right off the cliff, headlong into destruction. So, beloved, do not reject Christ. Don't reject him, because he's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the church and the foundation of your life. If you reject him, that doesn't make him any less the Almighty King. Rejecting his authority doesn't take it away. But instead, cry out to God. Cry out to your God to save you from your sins. You might wonder, is this really a message for people who are in the church? And yes, absolutely it is. Because this was a message to the Jewish people. The covenant people of God. You are the covenant people of God. You have heard his word. You are taught his word. It's up to you, in your heart, to repent. And every believer, every day we have an opportunity to follow that commandment of Christ, repent and believe. Whether this is the first time or the hundredth time, today is the day for each and every one of us, myself included, to repent and believe in Christ. When we see Jesus on that road, don't attack him. Don't seek to destroy him, but instead fall at his feet humbly and worship. Flee from your sins. Flee to the cross of Christ. And he will set you in his vineyard, safe and secure, 
protected by his wall, safe because of his tower. Amen.